It's an awesome thing, our relationship with Jesus Christ. It's one based on trust. It's one that calls for us to trust Him. And it's one where He trusts in us. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Well, I am glad you are at the Church of Omaha tonight. I'm thankful you are here. Uh, the pals, they are gone. We're excited for them to return. Um, at this time, we will let the children go, but we'll keep the youth in here just for a moment because we have a special treat for the rest of you. I don't believe we have any uh, ladies or anything this month, so um, we have a treat for the rest of you. Sister Courtney is going to come and deliver a word that God has given her, laid on her heart, and um, you may be seated if you like, but uh, she's got a word from God, and I appreciate you, Sister Courtney. Um, I appreciate, enjoyed working with you and your fine husband and youth, and and uh, I've got children and youth, and you, your, your ministry means a lot to us, and so we're thankful for it, and we're excited to hear from the word of the Lord tonight, but also we appreciate your commitment to the kingdom of God and just have enjoyed watching you grow in God. So. Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, I do love those teenagers, so they have my heart. Uh, if you could all turn with me tonight um, to Mark chapter 4. We're going to be reading um, a portion of a parable here, um, verses 3 through 9. And I'm reading in uh, New King James this evening. And it says, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And it happened as he sowed that some sea fell by the wayside and the birds of the air came and devoured it. Some seeds fell on stony ground where it did not have much earth and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched and because it had no root, it withered away. And some seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it out, and it yielded no crop. But other seed fell on the good ground and yielded crop that sprang up, increased, and produced some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. And he said to them, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. For the next few moments tonight, um, if you'll be so kind, <laughs> I believe that God has given me a word um, titled, The Ground of My Heart. If you'll pray with me. Lord, have your way in this place tonight. I thank you for your spirit that has already entered into this house. Let every word I speak be from you and for the edification and the equipping of the saints. I pray that your word may fall upon our hearts as the seed fell upon the good ground. Let it take root, increase, and produce a hundredfold. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we dig into the scripture tonight, I want to first give honor and thanks to Bishop Powell, who's not here, maybe watching, um, for this opportunity to take a few moments to speak to you all. I would also like to give honor to my husband, Jeremy, whom I love very much. I stand before you submitted to my husband, my bishop, and most importantly, Jesus. So this parable found in Mark is also found in Matthew and Luke, and they're all told from different perspectives. But the purpose and the teaching of the parable stayed the same. The sower went out to sow the seed, and the seed fell on four different grounds. First, some seeds fell by the wayside. This was the unprepared ground. The seed was not even able to receive before the birds came and devoured it. The seed simply landed on the surface. 
When our hearts are not prepared by prayer, fasting, and personal study, the soil of our hearts is hard and unprepared to receive the word. The second ground spoken of in this parable was the stony place. This place caused the seed to grow and without any roots. Uh, the soil responded with immediate growth to this human eye. The seed didn't, did respond, but it only responded because there was life in the seed, but no life in the soil. You see, this heart had good intentions. It heard the word of God, it knew it was true, and it showed immediate joy. But when, the time, when it was time to go back to the things of this life and back to our regular routine and the trials and the tribulations scorched the weak plant and it died. The third ground also did not produce fruit and was a ground full of thorns. This ground started out looking as good soil, but as the seed started to grow, the thorns also grew up with it and choked it out. The ground of this person's heart looked right. It took in the seed as it was supposed to, but it missed a very important part of the process. It allowed the worries of life, deceitfulness of riches, and the daily grind of life to choke it out. But the fourth soil, this one-fourth of soil, is the one that received the seed and produced fruit. This is the heart that hears and understands the word as Jesus commands at the end of the parable in verse 9. How this parable speaks of the good ground is very minimal compared to the other grounds that they spoke about. Those other grounds have more detail of what they did wrong. The good ground executes its care in the opposite fashion as all of these other three grounds. The good ground was prepared. They had a daily intake of the word of God with prayer and fasting. They allowed, it allowed for them to be open to receive the word as it was scattered. They also surrounded themselves with support and people of God. They also received the word with joy. But additionally, they put in the hard work and time spent to create those roots. Roots not only grounded, but grounded in the right place. So Colossians tells us in chapter 2 that we should walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith as we have been taught, abounding in thanksgiving. When we are truly rooted in Christ, we won't be scorched by the trials of life, persecution, or affliction. Instead, we will stand tall knowing where we find our strength. The good ground also made sure to take care of itself. Daily heart check was a must. The good ground caught the thorns and plucked them out before there was even a threat of being choked, of being choked out by the thorns. The worries of this life was not a threat because I am focused on the things above and not on the things of this earth. I will not be deceived by riches because my father owns the cattle on a thousand hills and he will supply all my needs. So I do not want for anything. I don't need to lust for the things of this world because I know what is coming is far greater than what I have here or can even imagine. The good ground sounds great. But as physical farming takes work, so does preparing the ground of our hearts. A farmer can tell a lot about their soil by the fruits of their labor. This is the same for us. The, word we, the words we speak, the actions we take, and the fruit we bear are all telltale signs of the true ground of our hearts. So how do we prepare the ground of our hearts to yield 30, 60, and 100 fold? I believe that it's input. It matters what we take in. Physical ground needs water and nutrients, and so do we. 
We need the word of God in prayer first and foremost. We need to spend time with the one who we want to be like. When you spend time with your spouse or a close friend, you start to act like each other. You say the same things and you often start to make the same gestures. This is how I want to be. I want to be so close to Christ and spend so much time with him that I act like him, that I talk like him, and that I think like him. We also need to control what comes in our eyes and our ears. We speak about this with the students a lot. These things may not be all bad, but consumed enough, they can influence your heart and then eventually your words and your actions. Everything flowing in or already in our hearts should be able to be measured by Christ. Of course, the word is full of examples of how to be and how to not be. My favorite way to measure is a simple, is a simple section of the Bible, but if, I believe it's very powerful. In 1 Corinthians 14. In 1 John, it tells us that God is love. And 1 Corinthians tell us how, tells us how love acts, therefore telling me how I should act. It tells me what my output should be, therefore telling me if I am inputting the correct things into me. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. It does not behave rudely. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It thinks no evil. It does not rejoice in iniquity, but it rejoices in truth, bearing all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. This is one of our measuring sticks. And how do we measure up? I know there's always room for improvement for me. When we truly rely on God fully, and take care of our hearts through our input. The seed of the word of God will bring forth fruit. The miraculous will happen when we create a clean heart and a place for God to live in us. I encourage us all tonight, as the word of God goes forth beyond this pulpit, that we examine our hearts so the seed will fall upon good ground. I pray that we all ponder this word more than just now and truly strive to spend more time with Christ, becoming more like him. Our hearts and our faithfulness matter for others and for eternity with him. Thank you. Well, I kind of almost want to ask if she peeked at my notes because I think she stole most of my thunder already. Um, <laughs> fantastic word that was very, very good and very applicable. It's easy sometimes to come up and uh, say, you know, some cliches and catchphrases that make people clap and shout and do those kind of things. But it's a whole different uh, approach to saying things that will actually contribute to our growth in Christ. I think uh, as a church, we should be far more concerned with change being brought about and less about hype and emotion. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't be emotional for God. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be uh, uh, submissive and, and, and willing to be broken before God. But I think what happens on occasion is sometimes it's easier to get caught up in the emotion of the moment, but no change actually takes place. And for me, that is a scary place because it's easy in the moment to feel good emotionally. 
it, if, if that is the only thing I'm using to measure my walk with God, then I will go through life blindly and ignorantly believing that I must be doing everything right because I had a temporary emotion of feeling good. And so tonight I'm going to just simply talk about the topic of biblical maturity. Um, lines up perfectly with what Sister Courtney has already said. And um, this topic has been something that I've been thinking about for, man, probably close to a year now. Uh, end of last summer, there were several things going on. Some things here, but a lot of things outside of here with work and everywhere else. And in my mind, I, I, I kind of look at our society and where we are and um, how that people are so willingly ready to believe things that are obviously false. Not that it's a matter of opinion or interpretation, but that it's by all logic and all reason is very clearly wrong and false. And yet this world has gotten to this place where they just believe it wholeheartedly. And if you disagree, you are the problem, not the faulty thinking. And as I have been chewing on this kind of thought for quite some time now, I can't help but think about it in the book of 1 Peter and 2 Peter where it talks specifically about how that in the end time there would be people who are given over to all sorts of diverse lust and saying things are good when they're clearly wicked and how that people would be deceived. And I think that that passage there is not a direct reference to the world because the world is already deceived. That passage is a reference to the church. That the church in that time would be deceived into trading the truth for a lie. And so the question in my mind becomes, what do I, on an individual level, as well as a ministerial level, need to do to ensure that I am not deceived by this world, or even by my own heart? And the answer is fairly simple. It is to root yourself in Christ, but it is also to tend to that ground so that that seed would grow, produce roots, and ultimately produce fruit. In Colossians chapter 1, if you want to open your Bibles, and don't worry about standing. We're going to go through you know, quite a few passages. Um, and I may not get through all of my notes tonight, which is fine because I've kind of planned for this Wednesday and next Wednesday to discuss this topic of maturity. So I don't I don't want to rush through this for the sake of time. I want to make sure that we, we kind of get what this is that the Bible is trying to tell us. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul's writing, and we pick up in verse 23. And listen to what it says. Chapter 1, verse 23. If ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. Verse 24, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh, for his body's sake, which is the church. Verse 25, whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Pause right there for just a moment. What Paul is doing in this opening verse or chapter here to the church at, uh, of the Colossians is the same thing that he does in most all of his other epistles, where he kind of opens up and explaining that his role as a minister is not to be a reflection of himself, 
but to be a reflection of Christ and of his teachings. And therefore, everything that he then espouses further is not telling them to be like him in so much that it is to be like Christ. And he uses the gospel many times to help draw these parallels to the church to help them understand what it is they need to change. Now, so far, we started off pretty good. Paul seems to be kind of, you know, saying, hey, you guys are doing good. I'm happy that I have suffered affliction for your sake so that you would hear the word. But listen to what he says here in verse 28. It says, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Now, if you are to only read this in the English and have no context to back up what is being said here, it would seem that Paul is saying, I'm writing you this letter so that you can become perfect. Well, in English, that word perfect means without flaw, without fault, perfect. But we know that's not what he could be saying there because we know that none of us are perfect except for Christ. And that as long as we walk within our flesh, that we are still within the corruptible and not yet the incorruptible. So what does he mean here when he says that he is striving so that every man would be made perfect? Well, the word that is used here is a Greek word that I will not try to pronounce. But listen to what it says, what, what, what this word perfect means in the original Greek. It means to complete in all its parts, to be full grown, of full age, specifically referencing the completeness of the Christian character. What Paul is saying here is that the purpose of his ministry to this church, as well as all others, is to help the believer understand what it takes to become mature in Christ. The reason why he does this is that the temporary feel-good of the altar will fade at some point when we are overwhelmed by stress and loss and, and, and trouble and quarrels in this world and all of those things. And just the temporary moment at the altar, which is important, is not in and of itself sufficient to keep us walking in alignment with God. That beyond the initial moment of connecting with God, that we must stay connected and then understand that word that we read, that we don't read it for the sake of, man, I read the whole Bible this year. Great. But did you actually apply any of the Bible this year? Because you don't get a special badge when you make it to heaven. Oh, you read the Bible three times. Gold star for you. But what does matter is, did you take that word and apply it so that you become more like him and less like us? That's what God is looking for. One of the things that Paul emphasized consistently throughout all of his ministry was this concept of spiritual maturity. He in no uncertain terms told church after church that a Christ-centered living church requires a maturation if it has any hope of standing the test of time. And before we get too far into this lesson, I want to make two statements because I believe that they're important to, to establish these two statements before we go down the rest of this rabbit trail, so to speak. First is this. Do not confuse biblical maturity with intelligence, 
status or age. This world often teaches that maturity is a product of age, that those who are older have greater wisdom because of their life experiences. But the truth is, biblical maturity is not defined as reaching a particular station in life. Maturity is not defined by the number of trials you have endured. And most importantly, biblical maturity is not defined by Pastor Powell, by Pastor Lucas, by myself, or any other person who graces the doors of this church. Biblical maturity is defined solely by the Word of God. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. God gave the church teachers and preachers and, and evangelists and prophets and apostles, but he gave them for the purpose of edifying the church in the word of God so that they would grow to the full stature of Christ. The man or woman standing behind the pulpit talking is not who is defining maturity, but simply revealing what is already written in God's word. And the reason why that is so incredibly important is because of this. I am a human. I will make mistakes. I will have moments where I fail. But the good thing is, is that the word of God that you hear preached and that you read and that you learn will not fail. It is not wrong at any moment. It does not contradict itself. So despite the fallacy, the flaw of mankind in our flesh, we can stand firm on the word that it is forever settled under heaven. And the second thing is this. Being mature does not mean that you won't make mistakes or that you won't have moments of mourning or sadness. Now, not to get too far off topic, but I, I want to address something that I, I have fear has spread across modern Christianity for quite some time now. And this is the concept that if you are mature in Christ, you should never be sad. That if you're mature in Christ, you should have joy. But then they define that joy as an emotion of feeling happy. When hopefully we know that joy is nothing to do with the emotion of happiness. Scripture is full of verses that talk about us mourning with them that mourn, that comforting those who are hurting, to uplift one another when we fall and make mistakes and when we do things. Because all of those things are part of the human condition. And what can be so detrimental to new believers is when someone comes alongside them and says, hey, listen, if you're really saved, you should not be sad that someone died because you should know they're going to heaven. Well, that is the dumbest thing I have ever heard. And it's not scriptural. But beyond that, you risk damaging a new believer to the point that they say, well, what is the purpose of coming to this church if all I keep getting told is that I should just suck it up, I shouldn't be sad, I shouldn't, you know, I should just trust God that it's, it is what it is and leave it at that. That's not the way God operates. There's a reason why scripture tells us that God is the prince of peace. If we didn't need the peace of Christ, then great, we could be happy. But the truth is, as God knew from the beginning, that in our own flesh, we would have doubt and sorrow and hurt. And because of that, he would d demonstrate himself to his church as the God of peace. As the God who is closer 
than a brother. The God who provides for his people because he knew that in us alone we cannot do it. And therefore we are dependent on him. And I will tell you, I think that is an awesome thing. Because if it was dependent on me, I would never make it. Because in my flesh, there dwells no good thing. I am not perfect. Ask my wife. She will probably tell you the same. But the good thing is, is that my ability to have salvation isn't based on that. It's based on the perfection of Christ. But let me take that to its next level because, yes, our salvation is absolutely 100% purchased and defined by Christ. But that does not negate a responsibility of every believer to then heed the word of God and to apply it to your heart and to grow and mature in Christ. Because unfortunately, while there are definitely some who take the legalistic view that God will not love you unless you get every single thing perfect, there is on the same hand at the other end, those who say it does not matter what you do in life, once God saves you, you're done, you're in. You can just do whatever you want to in life because God saved you. Scripture does not say that anywhere. Thus why Paul continually says, daily I press toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of God. That he repents daily, that he has to die to his own flesh daily. So now let's turn to Hebrews chapter 5. And I want to get into a little bit of just a simple overview of what it means to be mature. What, what does this even mean? It's an easy thing to say, but what does it mean to actually be mature? And why is it so important? So we're going to start here in Hebrews, and we're going to uh, start chapter 5, verse 1. And as you're turning there, let me set just a little bit of context for you here. Hebrews was written to Jews. Now, specifically, it was written to Jews who have converted to Christianity. And I've said this before, I don't like that phraseology. Because in my mind, in my understanding of the verse, of, of, the, of the word of God, is that it wasn't that Judaism in and of itself was wrong, and they therefore needed something else in Christianity, but that Christ was the fulfillment of Judaism, if you will. That he was the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And therefore, when these Jews, if you will, quote-unquote, converted to Christianity, they didn't really convert anything except for that they recognized Christ as being the fulfillment of everything taught and prophesied in the Old Testament. The Old Testament brought them to the understanding that Jesus is God, that he is the Messiah, and therefore he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament law. So the reason why I wanted to point that out first is because as we jump in here in Hebrews chapter 5, and honestly throughout all of Hebrews, there are a ton of references to the Old Testament. And that is intentional, because the writer knows his audience. So listen to what he says, chapter 5, verse 1. For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way, for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. And by reason hereof, he ought as for the people, so also for himself, to offer for sins. 
Verse 4, And no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made an high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee, as he saith also in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We're going to come back to that name here in just a second. Verse 7, Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplication with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him for death, from death, and was heard in that he feared, though he were a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Verse 10, called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, if you read through the book of Hebrews and you don't understand who the audience is and, and what these references mean when it talks about Melchizedek, you're going to miss out on a majority of what the writer is trying to convey in this letter because it wasn't accidental or just a secondary note for him to bring up this person Melchizedek and how that this person Melchizedek is someone who is incredibly important. And he also said that, that you've heard before about Melchizedek. What he means there is Old Testament in Judaism, the way that most people learned the way that they became familiar with God was by hearing others recite or read from the scrolls of the prophets of the Old Testament from the Torah. So they would hear these things their whole life being read. So if you had went to a devout Jew and you said the, the name Melchizedek, they would most likely have at a minimum heard that name and may or may not have kind of an understanding of what that is a reference to. But if you don't know the word of God, if you don't spend the time to dig in here, you miss something that is amazingly powerful that the author is about to show his audience. So listen to this. So now we're going to look at verse 11, same book here. It says, Of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing you are dull of hearing. Pause. So in chapter 5, verse 1 through 10. The writer starts talking about the Old Testament, talking about things that they would and should have known, who Melchizedek was, who these Old Testament people were. They should have known these things. But now he tells them, I have a whole bunch of things I really want to explain to you about Melchizedek. But because you are dull and hard of hearing, it's going to be almost impossible for me to really get you to understand what it is that you need to hear. It is not enough to come to church and listen to the preacher and then put Christianity on a shelf every other day of the week. Because though you hear the word without ever applying it, understanding it, falling in love with it, digging into it on a daily basis, you in essence and I in essence would become dull of hearing. Meaning, I hear the words that you're saying, but in truth, I don't really understand what they really mean. I don't understand the spiritual significance of what it is that you're trying to convey to me because I've not taken the time to mature, to grow in the word, to really understand how God is trying to speak to me on an individual level. 
And he says here in verse 14, but, or sorry, verse 13. And if you have a highlighter, pen, whatever, I want you to highlight 13 and 14. Because it's these two verses that will define everything else we do for tonight and for next week. 13 and 14. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. Verse 14. But strong meat belongeth to them that are full of age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discernment both good and evil. In these two verses alone, the writer helps us to see very clearly what separates those who need the milk and those who truly can take the meat of the word. And the meat of the word is not how far you read it. The meat of the word is not how much time you spend each day reading the words on the page. The writer here says that the meat comes only by you exercising the word of God. He explains that it is their continued use of the word that allows them to take what they heard and apply it to their their heart and their soul so that as they walk day to day, they operate in the word. Not just reading it, but now operating in the word. And it's that process of operating in the word that really helps you to go beyond the milk, beyond the the simple precepts. And I don't mean that in a negative way. But what I mean is that if you hang out in the milk, you cannot be what God wants you to be. If all you do is drink milk, you will not be able to accomplish what God has for you. And I'm going to show you in just a moment that that's not me. That is the word of God that, that says this. So we'll come back to that here in just a second. Genesis chapter 14. So remember, he's writing to these Jews and he's explaining to to them this person, Melchizedek. And what does this mean? What is this referencing? Genesis chapter 14, starting in verse 14. It says, And when Abraham heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318, and pursued them unto Dan. And he divided himself against them, he and his servants by night, and smote them, and pursued them unto Hobah, which is on the left hand of Damascus. Verse 16, and he brought back all the goods, and also um, brought again his brother Lot and his goods, and the women also, and the people. Verse 17, and when the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of this other location... Um, and of the kings that were with him at the valley of Shaveh, which is the king's dale. Now, verse 18, here it is. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And he gave him tithes of all. Okay. So the story goes. Lot, who decided to make his dwelling near the worst cities of the known time, was then taken prisoner by one of the other local kings. Now Abraham 
being the kind of individual that he was, caring for his family, said that he could not let this abide, that he was going to do whatever it took to go back and to rescue Lot, even though it was Lot who made the decision of his own accord to camp right outside of the enemy's door. But Abraham's love for his family allowed him to say, you know what, yes, he made that decision, but that doesn't mean I shouldn't pursue him to bring him back to where he needs to be. And so he does. He takes his, his servants, 300 men, and he goes and he fights this battle. And probably up until this point in his life was one of the, 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 the worst and most important battles that he's had to face, knowing that not only if he loses will Lot likely die, but that he and his family will also die as well. So there's a lot riding on this. But he goes anyway, and he is able to be victorious, and he comes back. And when he returns, we hear now this person that's also referenced in Hebrews, this Melchizedek, king of Salem. He came to Abraham, and he, pre he presented Abraham with a blessing. And the blessing that he presented him with was bread and wine. Just remember that. Hebrews chapter 7. So now we were in Hebrews 5 where he's kind of introducing or, or bringing this character out of Melchizedek. And now we jump over to chapter 7. And listen to what it says here. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and bless him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation... King of righteousness. And after that also, King of Salem, which is King of peace. Without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. There is only one person that this could possibly be referencing. There is no confusion, no room for debate or interpretation because there is only one person in all of Scripture who it can be said had no beginning and no ending, who had no mother or no father, who is sinless, spotless, and abides forever. Only one, Jesus. I find it interesting that Jesus also, Isaiah, in prophesying about this Jesus, called him the prince of peace. Now, side note, the word prince there is not a reference to a second in command or a second person. If you go back, the word prince there actually means author. He is the author of peace. When the angel said peace on earth, they weren't talking about an emotion. They were talking about a person. That peace itself now dwelled on the earth. But we also know throughout all of the New Testament that Jesus is also referred to as the King of Righteousness, the Sinless One, the Spotless Lamb. So, in Genesis 14, after Abram faced his toughest battle where there was a lot on the line, how was it that he was to be encouraged, to, to be blessed despite the battle? What was it that the king of righteousness brought to this man in his darkest hour that would be sufficient to not only bless him, but give him enough energy to continue on to the next battle? 
the bread and the wine. Jesus, as he sat with his disciples before he was to be crucified, could feel the tension in the air. His disciples knew that he had been saying that he's going to be betrayed. They knew that he had been saying that he's going to be crucified. And despite all of their zeal, the truth is, is that most of them did not feel confident enough that they said, okay, when Jesus dies, we've got this. We know what we're going to do. No, the truth is that most of them were probably scared out of their mind. This person that we have dedicated three, three and a half years of our life, that we left our families, our jobs, our homes, everything, we put it all on the line to follow this person who unfortunately they thought was going to establish the kingdom that they had in mind then, which isn't what Jesus was doing. There's no doubt that they felt nervous. But Jesus says to them, he is going to give them the thing that they need to be able to take heart even in their moment of fear and desperation. It was going to provide them with something that, that they could not do on their own that would be the thing that could sustain them as they walk through this journey. And it was the bread and the wine. Jesus very clearly said numerous times that he is the bread of heaven. When we say that the word of God is the bread, that's true because the word was in the beginning with God. The word was God and the word was God. That Jesus Christ was the physical embodiment of the word. And therefore, when he is saying, I'm going to provide you with the bread, he is saying, I am going to give you me. I'm going to give you the one thing that you could not do on your own. Atonement for sins through the perfect person of Jesus, but not only that, that he would return to them to live within them. So the thing that he knew his people needed was his very presence dwelling within them continually. The reason why I'm, I'm spending so much time harping on this first point is because do not allow the enemy to tell you that you are not smart enough to mature in Christ, or that you've made too many mistakes to ever mature in Christ, or that you don't hold the right pedigree to mature in Christ, because maturing in Christ is all about Christ within you. It is about you being submissive to the perfect being that dwells within you, which is great, because it means your ability to mature is defined by God. And you can take pretty, pretty good assurance in knowing that if it depends on him, it's okay. You can know that it's going to happen. So as we kind of talk a little bit further here, and I'll, I'll start bringing this to a close. When we begin this journey individually, and I'm not talking about this lesson in, in general, though. As we begin this journey of wanting to mature in Christ... We first have to have it made up and understood in our mind that maturity comes from application and not memorization. Yes, study the word, read it. If you can memorize it, fantastic. But when David talked about hiding the word in his heart, he wasn't just referring to the words on the page. 
but that he took the word and applied it to his life so that it was the word driving his decisions. It was the word that he was able to use to strengthen himself, to encourage himself in the moments of darkness and trial and tribulation. It was the word being applied that allowed him to mature. Now, we do not expect a five-year-old kid to be mature enough to balance a checkbook. I mean, truthfully, most adults can't do it either. So we would not expect a five-year-old to do that. That's not realistic. Okay, you need to know that because we as the body of Christ, as we ourselves mature, had better not look at a new babe in Christ who walks through the door for the first time and expect to hold them to the same level that it took you 10 years to get to. Because your maturity is not a sign of your righteousness. It's a sign of the perfection of God's righteousness working within you. Well, this new babe hasn't had that much time of God working within them to get to that place. So part of maturing as a Christian is also understanding how to teach others. Because if you go back to Hebrews 5, I didn't read this, but in verse 12 of Hebrews chapter 5, when he lays out to them and tells them that, yeah, I want you to understand this, but you're dull of hearing, you're still on the milk. What he says in verse 12 is even, even harsher. He says, because you should be the teachers. You should be the ones out there teaching others about the word of God. But because you yourselves have not taken the time to mature, to grow, to apply the word in your own heart, the opportunity that you should be taking to teach, instead you're still sitting there listening and not doing anything about it. For me, let's all stand. For me, I don't want God to have to come to me and say, Jeremy, I have put so many people in your path that I wanted you to teach, that I wanted you to witness to, that I wanted you to show and demonstrate the love and mercy of God. But because you were more concerned with the milk and the emotion, that you disqualified yourself from reaching in and touching other people. I don't want that set of me. I'm going to believe that no one in this room wants that set of them either. So here's my challenge. As we go through this week and into next week, that we would begin to question ourselves, what areas do we individually need to mature in? Now, I'll give you a small tip. You probably don't need to spend all your time maturing in the thing that you're already the strongest at. Okay? It feels good. Yeah, I got this down. That's not maturing. That's stagnation. Be real with yourself. Identify what it is that you know, because you know the areas that you lack in. Trust me, I know the areas I lack in. And while God doesn't ask for perfection, he does ask for growth. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to hear your word. But Lord, even more, I thank you for the opportunity to take that word, to hide it in my heart, that I might be more like you and less like me. I thank you for being the eternal king, for being the eternal righteous one, the judge who is perfect in all his ways, but also being the God who sacrificed his very self 
for his mercy's sake to be within my life, to be within this church, oh God. I pray over this next week, touch our hearts. Help us to see, bring to our minds and our souls the things that we individually need to grow in to become more like you. Lord, I believe with all my heart there is a great harvest knocking at the door, but you are calling for your believers to be mature and ready to work the field. So God, let it not be said of me that I was the one who hindered the harvest, that I was the one who hindered the growth. Help us, O oh God, to submit ourselves unto you to take heart in knowing that you have provided all that we need. We love you and give you all glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Next week, we will spend the whole lesson talking specifically about traits of a mature versus an immature Christian.